Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Ian Cartwright. He's a Kiwi first, and his role is demystifying sales down under. So he helps people remove fear of sales. He works with people at entry level or even more experienced who seem to have some blind spots. They're not doing the basics well consistently over time and meaning it. They're getting in their own way. So he helps people to realize that their job in sales is to help customers recognize that they have a problem and co-develop a solution to that problem and to stop selling, start asking sensible questions, be curious, inquisitive, and ask questions that are insightful that help the customer move forward. And generally, you'll find if you do this, you'll have a lot more fun and far better results in sales. Ian's also written a book called The Six Fundamentals of Sales Know-How, and he runs Ian Cartwright Sales Coaching. Ian, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Ian, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your history, please? Yeah, I started, my first job really was as an electrical drafting cadet. So it was nothing into sales. And through that, I worked and did a New Zealand certificate of electrical engineering. Ended up with a company uh, when I was about 22, 23 called Orcom, where I went back and was an applications engineer for them and helping customers with service issues mainly and started to work okay with that. And my soon-to-be sales manager went to my father, who was a client of the company I was working for at the time called Orcom, and said to Dad, oh, we're going to move Ian into sales. We think he'll be okay there. And Dad turned around to Brian and said, he'd be no good in sales. He's too honest, which I thought was quite a nice <laughs> guiding principle. So, And I've sort of spent the last 30 years proving to myself that's not the case. So over the last 30 years, I've really worked B2B primarily, uh, locally and globally. I spent best part of 15 years at Orcom working in and around New Zealand selling uh, motor control solutions across multiple industries, then went into export for them and worked Asia-Pacific, Latin America, Europe, uh, South Africa, doing the same thing and working with sales teams to help them help their customers out. And so through that, managed to work with sales teams in about 20 different countries. Got to about 2011 and my two teenage boys decided dad needed to be home a bit more rather than traveling around like he was. And I thought, well, actually, what am I going to do now? And people say, oh, I should go and work for yourself because you seem to know what you're doing in sales. And I thought, oh, it's been mainly one industry. So I moved into a couple of three different industries and worked in completely different fields just to prove that the model that I was developing worked for me around B2B. And then about 2016, I decided, right, I'm going to go and do sales and marketing advisory and working because I'd gone up the ladder with corporate and got to the point where, and I know you talk about a lot where the sales leaders were interested more on what the numbers looked like at the end of the quarter for the shareholders. And you yeah. found that I got further and further away from customers. I thought this is not right because we're not doing the right thing by the customers and all those things like moving, bringing sales forward into the quarter rather than do the right thing. And I just wasn't happy with that. So realized there was a bit of a gap locally where I am, which is Christchurch and the Canterbury region, and lots of SMEs, lots of small companies around here. So I started working with them, and over the last five years, the thing I've got most passionate about is sales coaching and helping people realize that what they actually do is help their customers to solve problems. Okay. So that's my my bag. Let, let, let me ask you this then. When did you first get coaching yourself? Coaching, the first coaching I got was around nine, two parts I remember distinctly. One was in 94 when I was put on a relationship selling course for a day and it resonated with me because it was about asking questions in a way without being pushy. I'm, I call myself a nerd initially when I left school and this whole thinking you needed to be a flashy salesperson I, I wrestled with. 
thinking, oh, you've tried to try and be something you're not, which you don't. So that's the first part of that relationship selling course. And then not long after that, uh, the company I was working for put me on a Dale Carnegie course, which takes you to an nth degree in how to be personal and all the things that Dale Carnegie spoke about. And despite the fact that they were written so long ago, the core tenets of how you work with people are still relevant. But you bring it back to a normalised. We haven't evolved to a different species. If anyone hasn't followed, is it the Sales Historian podcast? Todd Capone. I just looked at that today. There's some great comments on there. Fantastic stuff on there. And you look back at some of these books that were written in the 1800s, the uh, 1900s. The stuff is still relevant because what they were doing was observing behavior. And they understood something that most salespeople today don't, which is people do not buy your product or your service. They're trying to get jobs done. Mm. They rent them for however long the service or the product delivers the outcome that they want. And this is where I think so many salespeople and businesses and product developers really need to think differently because far too few salespeople seem to start with the customer at the heart of everything that they do. They're not thinking about the jobs that person is trying to accomplish and Mm. what their struggling moments are, where there is an opportunity to intervene, where in the journey uh, those things happen predictably so that they can turn up and be relevant and useful. Mm. The basic example I give people when I'm trying to get the head around what we're talking about and being problem solvers is that, you know, if you and I go to a sandwich shop, we're not going there to buy the most attractive looking sandwich so we can bring it back, put it on our desk and look at it for the rest of the afternoon. We go to the sandwich shop because we're hungry and that's our problem. They solve it for us with a sandwich, which means we can be productive for the rest of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, people say, oh, that's, you know, this features, advantage, benefits. Well, it sort of is really. Nothing's changed in that respect. And that's what I wrestled with writing the book was actually, are you just reinventing the wheel? But I think you bring it back to basics. People are still people. People have problems they want solved. And getting people to understand that actually what they're trying to do is help people get on better in their industry. It's all about productivity and profitability. But actually being a problem solver too makes it a lot easier for people to get their head around being in sales and it's a lot more enjoyable given the industries you get to go and play in and the effect you can have on the economy. I agree with you and I would take it a step further, which is very often when salespeople make a sale, they walk out of there believing they know why the customer really bought, but they don't because they've never gone and tried to understand the process people go through. There's a really fascinating story Bob Mester tells about how people buy mattresses and what looked like a spontaneous purchase in Costco started four years prior. Mm. And when when you break it down, you start to understand how people go through making space, passively looking, actively looking, deciding and pairing away what the the things that they can sacrifice, then first use, then ongoing use. And at every stage, the seller needs to be aware of what they're trying to accomplish. So knowing what you do, first chapter of the book, is really key. You've got to understand your the world through your customer's eyes. So mm. what do you advise people to do to really understand your customer and see the world as they do and see the world as them instead of thinking about them? The sooner they can start to speak the customer's language, the better. And by just having some simple conversations with them, those who, what, where, why questions in their language about their industry, because it does two things. First of all, it, it helps it 
make it easier for an entry-level salesperson to start a conversation by just asking something simple. You might have, when I was dealing with um, irrigation systems, I said to my manager, look, I need to go and read up all about pumping systems. He said, don't, just go out with your customer and ask some questions, ride shotgun. Now, why is this important to put the pump in this depth? Yeah. Why do we need to have this control on there? And start to understand what their issues are. So it's about getting enough to start that questioning process. And as you start doing that, your customer is starting to realize this person's interested in what I'm doing. It's that genuine, sincere interest, which goes back to Dale Carnegie. You're asking about what they're doing, what their issues are, and you're trying to identify them. And you'll have a lot more fun doing it and you'll learn more doing it. And it's an easy way to start a conversation. So, the, And it was actually David Ogilvy out of uh, set up the advertising agency in London post-World War II, who first started in the advertising sector saying it struck, struck him that if we were going to advertise to people, we should do it in their own language because it'll resonate with them. You know, it's asking, not telling, isn't it? Well, it's really interesting. In the 1950s, in the heyday of Mad Men and everything else, Madison Avenue had psychologists resident in all of those agencies. Now they don't. And I think we've lost something. Uh, and we, we really do need to look back in history to uh, go back to some of these fundamentals Knowing what you do is one thing, but knowing why you're doing it as well is critical. Mm. So again, in terms of the, the process of recognizing how your why has to align with the customer's why, what's the process that you take people through there? I get them to reflect back why are they in sales? What are they in it for? Are they there just to make a quick buck and get out of it? Are they there because they want to build a career? And part of why you're in it is being clear what your success factors are. So when I was in early sales, the success factor for me was that at the end of each quarter if I'd done things properly I got a commission check which meant I could take my wife out for dinner which is what we did but actually it was about she used to hate me driving around the South Island of New Zealand saying oh look here's another irrigation system that my customer put in and here's something else they did because my focus was on them being successful and then growing their business through me understanding enough to be able to give them a solution to a problem which made them better at what they were doing. Because the key to being successful in sales in an industry is becoming part of the industry because people realize that you are in there as part of the team to make life better for everybody else that's involved. It sounds a little bit trite, but it's not. It's true. So knowing why you do it is really important. And the second part of that is being clear about who you are endemically. So I work with them on, you know, we, have, we all have traits which are good for us and we all have soft skills. So traits are about being organized and disciplined and resilient, things that you can do and you can't do. And the soft skills around EQ, being an active listener, those things that really make a difference. So some of the work that I do with those clients is say, okay, let's be clear about what you're really good at in both the traits and soft skills department. And let's identify what you need to work on and put a plan in place to bridge the gap between where you are now and where you want to get to, which is a simple you know, uh, using the Grove formula that John Whitmore's used. So that's the real why thing, being really clear about what is success going to look like for you so that you can hold the mirror up to yourself and be honest with yourself and be clear about your own skill development, what that needs to look like for you to be able to be successful in your own terms. So how much time do you recommend salespeople spend in uh, reflection, uh, journaling, in self-coaching? I think at least an hour a week thinking time or reflection time or reading. Now, it's so much easier in some ways because there's so much content out there. The flip side of that is you need to be, what do I read and what do I don't? Because you can't read all day. But an hour's a start. And you should be reading something all the time and talking to people. But even, it's interesting, and the book I've written is now being put into a university course locally here. And one of the things that we're putting in place for the university course is a forum where the 
the people that are participating can get together and share ideas because sales can be so lonely. And I know you're doing the work with the ecosystem on, over in the UK, but here we're trying to get the situation in the forum where they're more, more often not going to be one or two or three people from a particular company. And some companies still, the salespeople are really competitive with each other. So by having a forum, you can provide a situation where people can just bounce ideas off each other and learn from each other and share their thoughts. This this is really interesting. And the ecosystem actually is global. We've got people in New Zealand, in Australia, in the US, oh, South America. Um, so no, no, there's nothing to apologize for. I'm just so excited that it's now possible to do that and mm. uh, create what is in effect a full revenue operation globally from scratch, simply through networking and uh, finding shared values. That's the, the starting point, it's, you know, finding that sh- those shared values. But the, po- the point I want to make is that I'm seeing an enormous growth in high challenge, high support ecosystems and communities. Uh, they're all over WhatsApp, Discord, Clubhouse, LinkedIn. You're seeing uh, these communities evolve. And increasingly, I'm seeing more and more salespeople particularly at the uh, the SME end or where they don't have the history or the academic verification, clubbing together and supporting one another, creating internal marketplaces like a a circular economy, creating warm introductions for one another and bypassing the the old ways of just wearing out shoe leather and dialing for misery and dollars. So I'm curious, are you seeing more of that? Yeah, definitely. And it's Networking events for the purpose of collaboration within, you know, outside of the customer spaces. Networking, when I first started doing it in the 90s, was, you know, we it sort of came from a fear of, you know, you've got to go along with these things and be someone you're not and try and get all this work and speed date all the people that are in the room. And that's an issue with people who are just starting out in sales too, is to understand what do they do with networking. So I get them to lower their expectations. So if you can go to a networking event and come away with one or two coffee meetings as an outcome of that, that's, that's success. You have to be strategic, but you don't need to go there and try and meet 300 people and whiz around the room because it's just not being yourself. And that, that why thing, I've got three guiding principles that I work with people, which is so just be you, be real, and be a problem solver. So getting back to what we do, like locally LinkedIn Local is something that we have here in Christchurch that's run by a great team, and that's just to get people together and have a yak. And by doing that, the, the warm referrals come like you were just talking about, and uh, even just the process I've gone through with relaunching my brand and, and using various people to do the copywriting and the website all came out of those networking events uh, and works come from those networking events, but it's genuine and it's just through being a community. And I'm a big believer that we've got a global community, but you've also got your local community. And the more that you contribute to that just by having coffees, talking to people, and just treating people the way you want to be treated yourself, which is anybody, whether it's a customer or people you collaborate with, it all comes back to you. And it's much more fun. I, I have to, uh, to challenge you on that as well. The Bible got it wrong. Treat people the way they want to be treated. Treat them respectfully, but treat them the way they want to be treated. And this is, again, where salespeople get it wrong because they think that the stuff that matters to the salesperson and the marketing blurb that they've been fed matters to the customer. Uh, when I had my training business, uh, two uh, people came to me because they wanted to pay for IVF. That's why they were doing it. Another one, because his eventing horse had gone lame and it was going to cost 80 grand to pay the vet to uh, prevent him from turning into pedigree chum and glue. Yeah. And Jacob is still bouncing around fields 10 years later. 
another one because she ran out of wall space for her modern art collection. Now, but none of those are about customers, are they? That's the reality of it. That's why people buy. Those were the jobs they were trying to get done. They wanted to have a family. They wanted more space for their modern art. They wanted to buy and convert a barn. And these were the things that that really mattered to them. And one of the things that really flabbergasted me, I have never come across a single employee who has ever, not ever, been motivated by making their boss richer. No, no. The, the concept that we wake up in the morning to feed shareholder value is total horseshit. And yeah, and I've said, and you would have said in some ridiculous sales meetings run by people who've got no idea about sales and some of the things they expect you to do. It's uh, the further showing you go, it's just ridiculous. Well, there, stuff. there was a VC last week that announced that they were increasing the target for one of their companies by five hundred and ninety-three percent. I mean, in what world do they think that's likely not to result in an exodus of any talent that they have? We all I mean, love a top-down budget, don't we? It's, it's <laughs> flabbergasting. But yeah. I take your point on the difference between being treated yes, is understanding your customer's language, what they want and how they are. So again, coming to understand who your customer is, because I was working uh, with a company last year um, and they'd identified that their ideal customer was X, and they'd been selling to it for four years. When they ran the data, what they actually found was Y. And in three months, they increased sales by 21X. Yeah. So how many people do you find don't do that, though? Go back over their sales for the last two to three years and just do a simple analysis to see who's spending the money with them. Because people will rush out and say, I've got to go and grow business. One of the most common questions I get is, I need to find new business. Well, let's just have a look at what you've already got first and make sure that you're looking after the people you should be looking after. And then within that space, because so often it still is Pareto, 80% of the business will come yep. from 20% of the customers. But yep. so many, especially at SME level, don't even realize that. I encourage people to look over the last two to three years, run a rule over the sales figures, look for where it's coming from, but look for who's tailing off from where they were and understand why many won't. So why they're not buying from you. And those that are growing with you, why they're growing with you, what are you doing with them that's encouraging them to buy more from you? So that gives them somewhere to look immediately. And then with that top 20%, are you selling as much as your product range to them as you could be or flip it? Are you solving as many problems as you could be for them? Have you asked enough sensible questions? That's where you should find your first lot in your business. Interesting. Well, so many organizations or vendors um, fail to see the marketplace potential of an account. If they're dealing with a large organization or a trading business, they will have suppliers. Are those suppliers viable customers? Will they have channel and distribution partners? Could those be good customers? Do they have alumni who used to work at that company and have moved somewhere where they have similar pain? Is the customer's customer a potential customer? What about growing organically by selling something similar but different? You know, sell more of the same, sell to a different part, part of the family tree. And you're sat on all of this goodwill if you've been doing a good job, and you're wasting mm-hmm. it. You're going out cold. Yep, there's, I call it growing mold. If you've got a spore of business that's already here, why go chasing off a completely different direction when you've got something very similar right next to it, like mold, can grow right next to it? All those avenues you've just described are perfect. Then the challenge people have is knowing how to ask for a referral. They feel reluctant to say to their customer, look, we've been doing a really good job together. Uh, you understand how we've helped you. Who else do you think I should talk to? 
would be a good person for me to ever get to. I, How hard's that? Make, I always make referrals part of my compensation. If if you want more of my time, free up more of it by making it easy for me, so I don't have to spend my life prospecting. And I have not mm. done a cold prospecting call since two thousand and four. I hate the term cold. That should be warm. If you know what you do for people and you know the parts of the market you should be playing in, the people you should be approaching are those that you've already done some pre-qualification on and you know they should have some need for the sorts of things you can do for them. Yes, and. That gets to move you from a one in 20 to a one in six conversion on average. Mm. However, you want to up it to eight or nine in 10, sell hot. Prospect for people who are already selling into your cold market and they have a good relationship and develop close relationships with those people, learn how to cooperate, the thing that put us to the top of the food chain. Um, and they can they are then trusted by both you and the customer. So just to put this into context, um, just give me the net first name only of the one person in business you trust above all others on the planet today. Stephen. So if Stephen suggested that you speak to Fred, what's the probability that you would speak to Fred? Oh, absolutely. And if Fred came with something that was timely, relevant, valuable, and affordable, what's the probability you would purchase? Well, it's quite high, isn't it? And we know that 90% of customers trust referrals, according to that research at um, HubSpot I've done from B2B companies. It just makes life so much easier. Not only does a referral count for more because it's a one in six instead of one in 20, they spend on average two and a half times as much on initial order. They refer four times as frequently and the, the repeat purchase is 3x mm. an average cold. Yeah. So that's cold, but hot is even better. If you're getting hot, you're talking about a, virtually 100% access rate and then an 80 to 90% conversion rate. So mm. how much less resource do you need? How much less do you have to waste on marketing, spamming, cold calling, emailing, networking torment, and all the other shit that you pull? If you thought intelligently about it, well, what's the job I'm trying to accomplish? I want to accomplish X to fulfill these experiences in my life. In order to do that, what is the path of least resistance? How do I do this with the least amount of effort and the most amount of money? And I don't think working your network. Works. Yeah. So well, working your network, isn't it, with people's skills and talking to people? That that's the a way, and it's one of many. But the, the problem is, I don't think people stop and ask these really basic questions. Who is my customer? If you're applying the 80-20 principle, apply it to the bottom. Get rid of the bottom 20% and free up probably 80% of the wasted time. I had a customer reflect that back to me when I was working through this exercise with him. He said, oh, it looks like I've been busy chasing unicorns instead of following the money. Yeah. And he coined a perfect term himself. And he's, and all that took was just resetting that particular client and he was away. Well, along with chasing unicorn, you now have managers constantly weighing the pig. So your focus is in the wrong direction. And then you're driving terrible behavior and putting your salespeople under pressure every day. Well, how's this deal going? How's that deal going? And of course, no one wants to report. No. And I like the, the focus that you've got on trying to help the managers understand what they need to do at sales management level. Because so many of them that come into that role, particularly in smaller SMEs, they might just be a founder who's done no sales at all. And it's just looking at the bottom line about understanding how long it takes to fill the funnel and what sales process is and how it works and that it just comes down to the daily activity. Well, somewhere between 16.3 and 18.4 million UK workers are managed by accidental managers. These are people who woke up one morning, came to work, 
and they were sat there quietly munching their cereal and they were tapped on the shoulder and said, Ian, congratulations, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're now the idiot boss. And that was their Excellent. runway. Yeah, and they don't get any support. I only talked to Alex about that in a recent podcast that yeah. we promote people into positions that will Peter Principle for some cases. Yeah. And they've never done it before. And then we don't give them any tools. We just beat them with a hammer. So they just use a bigger hammer further down the tree. Well, that then, that then really raises a vitally important question. What should we be teaching managers in their runway as they're learning the job before you hire them? So the, the, in your succession planning, what should we be teaching senior salespeople uh, so that they are capable of becoming managers? They've got to understand the sales process itself, how that works and how people buy because they can't support their sales teams if they don't walk in their shoes for a while first to understand the world that they're playing. And it's just the same as the salespeople understanding their customers' world. The managers need to understand their team's world so they can then report back up appropriately and have their teams back and just understand how it's going to work and what the market's doing. Okay. And? Ooh, that's a good question. We need to give them the tools so they can actually measure daily activity. I'm all for sales managers managing daily activity because they can't manage those outputs and results. But if we know what their team should be doing each day, the managers can manage that activity and support to make sure that the sales team have the tools to carry out that activity. Okay, but in terms of the runway, learning the job for your successors, what would you recommend your future managers should be exposed to so that they learn those skills and capabilities Customers. Okay, interesting. Customers. There's nothing, I don't think personal, that's my opinion. There's nothing worse than a sales manager who is absent from the customers and makes their own mind up about what's going on in the market and convinces themselves that they're right. But if they're not out there talking to customers and listening to them, more than talking to them, how are they going to know whether what their sales team is telling Um, them? Okay, my question wasn't clear, so that's on me, sorry. The, the, the question is, when you're trying to bring your next generation of salespeople up, they're obviously going to be speaking to customers already. So what would you do in order to give them a pathway to learn the job of recruitment, managing day-to-day, running meetings, forecasting, all those kind of things? How, how would you build that pathway? for success? They themselves have to have a coaching program right. to support them in each of those facets. You can't just say, here, this is what you've got to do, where you go and do it. If they haven't done it before, how are they going to know? I love the analogy between business and sport. So if we're going to coach people to do a task, it's just the same in sport. We need to have a program and support and mentors for them so that they can help get themselves up to speed. And it's got to be consistent. You can't just give them a shot in the arm and say, there you go, you're now a sales manager. All the best, we'll see you come 12 months time when we're reporting. That needs to be as regular as the sales team support investing their own personal development every week. From that, what I'm hearing is that the responsibility for learning is in the salesperson's court, the responsibility for facilitating it and creating the conditions where they can develop and evolve that learning is on the manager. Well, you'll know yourself from working with organizations to get training in the budget. Like it's a, for some organizations, oh, we better do some training. What are we going to do? Let's put um, put a number in. We'll do some training and that's it. But if they don't create a safe environment where people feel like they can go away and spend some time on personal development and actually invest in what they're doing and get some coaching, it won't happen. It's, people get to the end of a year and they'll, we've had clients ourselves, 
oh, we've got to do some coaching. How about you come along to a half-day workshop and they'll be good. And we've been back to do the same thing in 12 months' time and they've forgotten all about it. It's just a one-off. They forget it really quickly. Back to square one. Part of the problem with that is how training is commissioned because you've got the executive who signs off on it uh, who may have some objective with training. It may be that they want to improve performance. It may be that they just want to uh, tick in the box. Uh, you've got HR who's worried about the people and technical side. You've got L&D who seems to obsess about recall and completion rates. I don't give a fuck about completion rates and recall. I want to know, have they been able to apply it in order to improve their performance? I don't care that they don't remember the squidgy uh, clothes or whatever it happens to be. I want to know that performance improves. That's why I buy training. Then you've got the poor um, managers who are probably seeing training as something that's an imposition and they've got people coming off the street. So they're complaining about that because yeah. they don't know how to coach and they see training as an imposition. Then you've got the cost. people who pay for it and they've got a different agenda. And then you've got the trainer who basically wants to get paid and fuck off. And you just got to wonder, well, why not maybe think about why we're doing the training? What's, What's the objective the of it? Yeah, exactly. What's the job we're trying to get done? And how do we measure that it's been successful? Well, the interesting thing is, in my experience, having delivered training for the last 17 years or so, uh, longer, I guess, is that the technique is absolutely the least important part of the whole process. But when training is commissioned, they obsess about technique. Teach my guys how to cold call. Teach my guys how to close. Teach my guys how to, uh, to handle objections. But that actually is almost irrelevant if you don't understand who your customer is, what jobs they're trying to get done, what they're trying to accomplish in life, where they are in their business life cycle, in their job life cycle, any of that stuff. It's mostly irrelevant. And you're just throwing mud at the wall and hoping it sticks. Do you find that when people come to you for training, uh, my team need, uh, need help on closing? Oh, I so that. Yeah, all, yeah, it's like, no, well, we're going right back. There's other things. Let's go right back to the beginning and actually understand, do you really know what you're doing for your customer? Because if we go through that process, at the end, your customer will buy and you might have to ask for the order, but you've done all the work. You've shown that you're going to improve and solve the problem for them and you become trusted. It's not about closing. It's about all the stuff that happens before that. And the closing is the easiest part. I mean, in the training, I teach about three minutes of closing. Hmm. My, yep. my favorite one is, so... Yeah, should we get on with it? <laughs> what do you want to do next? And yeah, that's Let's it. get the paperwork underway. So, in the book, you say it's important you know where you do what you do. What, what mm. do you mean by that? That she touches on that existing business part. And because people will get, well, now I know what I do for my customer, I'm going to rush off and find a whole lot of new business. But my focus on where is three areas, really, and it's that customer categorization we spoke about because so many people don't do it. And really understanding that you do have such a thing as a gold, silver, or bronze customers, and we don't want to spend too much time with the bronze, but we want to love our gold ones, polish the silver ones so that they become gold and put the steps in place to make that happen. That then comes around, that dovetails into key account management and relationship management and layered relationships and making sure that we've covered our bases. That's the first part of the knowing where to do it. The second part is then when we've got those clients, let's look for the old white spaces as simple as that is, because that's where our easy gains are from people you already have relationships with. And you should know them well enough to know whether there are opportunities that you're not exploiting because they're using someone else. 
and you already have the relationship so you can go and talk to them. The third part of that is that growing mould that we touched on before where, okay, well, I'm already working in this space in the market and there's a very similar one right next door to it. I should go and work there and get some more work from them. So I've got a one client I work with who he's into masonry supplies, so he works with uh, bricklayers and that sort of thing for group home builders. He's got a group home builder that he's been working with one bricklayer for, but that group home builder has three bricklayers working for him. The most obvious place for him to go and grow mould is with the other two bricklayers. Absolutely. Because, you know, and it's a simple thing, and he started doing that, and away he goes. It's, but that's where you should be doing it. If, until you've maximised your existing customer base and done the simple stuff, then you don't need to, you know, that's what you do first. And there's so much can come from that. I think there are far too few people spend the time really thinking deeply. So what, what are the workarounds that you see your customers trying to implement? What are the creative ways or strange ways that they're applying uh, tools or solutions in ways that they weren't originally intended? How are they overriding systems to get the job done more easily? These are all fantastic indicators where there's pain. In terms of how they approach their clients when you building new business? Not only um, how they approach, but how they message, how they think about their customer. When you start thinking about what they're trying to accomplish and what the obstacles are to that and who is involved and what the moving parts are and the timings and all of that stuff, now stuff starts to make a lot more sense. You know, what are the unintended consequences of their current behavior? When we look at the status quo, what's the cost of staying stuck? Because more often than not, no one's really put that to them in a way that was compelling enough uh, that they thought, you know, actually, we need to change. And simplicity is actually one of the ways a lot of people are doing it. The guy I was talking about before, who's recently got three or four people working for him and he's doing masonry supplies, he worked out that a lot of what he does through having arranging deliveries for people is to make their lives easier so they don't have to go to hardware stores, et cetera. So he'll just do a text out on a Friday, which he wasn't doing before. He's got it synchronised with a CRM, goes out to all the people that he would normally ring up and talk to. They don't have time to talk to all the phone calls on a Friday afternoon, but they know they get a text from Scott and then they text back with the order and he gets it underway. So that's all done automatically and it's really simple and effective to his existing base. And, and the cost of customer acquisition is? Negligible. A text. It's, it's hardly anything. It's, it's nothing. You know, and, it, and that's it does white spaces, it builds relationships in, in their own way because they respect that he respects how they want to be talked to. So it's simplicity. And I think the last couple of years have taught people that although it's been a challenging environment, a lot of the simple stuff still works really well. And it is easier for to get people on video calls. And we're moving away from that now because we're out and about doing things. We're a bit slower to open up in other countries, but we're starting to get back out and do normal things. But actually taking a step back to think, I can go back to doing things the old ways and actually picking up the phone and talking to people is really good too. Yeah, but again, a lot of people really don't like doing that. So, No. <laughs> okay, very interesting. I am curious, when you work with an organisation, how important is it for you to work with marketing and management as well as sales? Right at the start, very. I'm a great believer that sales and marketing work together. But then to my own way of thinking, in many ways, the marketing has to come first. That comes out of understanding what it is you do to help your customers. Because if you're really clear about how you are making their lives easy, that becomes your messaging. So the marketing and, and marketing team and management have to be on board with that. 
business strategy comes first, then the marketing strategy to support it, then the sales team can go and implement it. But everybody has to be in the room while we work through what that really is so we're all on the same page because otherwise we're all singing from different books. So I think it's really important. So again, what are the indicators that tell you that maybe you need to do that exercise and go back to just a blank sheet of paper and start for fresh? When you've got marketing people telling you what customers think and they've never spoken to any. <laughs> That's a really good indicator, yep. <laughs> yeah, and convincing themselves that they are, and I've seen this so many times, you'll, you will push back and say, actually, I've found this out. And they'll say, no, no, but what they really mean is this. This is what they're saying to you, but what they really mean. Oh, do they? Oh, cool. When did you last go out and talk to one? And so too many times at the high level, they will convince themselves they are right within their own four walls, and therefore that's the way we should go. And that's just, that tells you that they need to be sitting around a table. But it takes someone external to actually talk to them a bit about that. And I really encourage them to, to use an external person, and we do it, to go and talk to their customers and actually ask them questions about what why they deal with this company, why they like dealing with them. Sometimes your marketing messaging comes from your clients in that situation. Mm, yeah, see that a lot. Okay. I mean, most of the best ideas I've ever had have come inspired through customers. And yeah. they've taught me how to sell to them better than any training. When it comes to the actual sales cycle, the alignment and the coordination with marketing can be incredibly powerful. Uh, but I tend to see marketing operate typically at the front end to generate leads and that kind of stuff. And they may do a bit of branding stuff uh, if they're a little bit more mature. But I'm not really seeing marketing as the heavy artillery that goes along with the sale. So they send you know, useful and relevant choreographed content in preparation for your next meeting. And mm. they are helping you to build the, do the mold uh, and infect the rest of the account. And they are listening deeply to the customer along with customer success. Because I think that's another area that they have to really align with. And often there isn't enough cooper cooperation between marketing, sales, CS, and product development. Because I think all four of those have to be involved. Especially for a new product, getting customers that are usability testing is hugely important. What was really interesting with Catherine Reed talking about China, what she said really blew my mind. The Chinese have a huge advantage in that they can test at scale really easily because they can just go to you know, a quarter of Shanghai and get a yeah. million users to test an app or to test a thesis. And because of the culture where people have a community focus, you can probably get more compliance that way as well. So it's a <laughs> testing bed. It really makes me wonder how we could capitalize on that. Scale, isn't it? Yeah. To answer your question about the marketing messaging, though, I think they do yeah. need to work together. A lot of work that I work with is in the ag space, so it's very seasonal, and the marketing messaging has to line up in that space. In the what sales to agribusness? Right, sorry, I thought you said Agri that. Sorry, it's the accent. Agribusiness. No, I thought you said egg business, and I thought that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of it could be egg production. It could. I'm going to be clients in that. But so that's an example where the marketing messaging has to be lined up, and the, the teams need to be talking together. And I encourage firms, and they don't though, but I do encourage firms that they have the sales and marketing teams have at least one common collective meeting, collaborative meeting a month, where it's clear that this is the messaging we've got going out. Do you guys understand that? What do you need from us? 
no surprises internally, yeah. and then the sales team know where they're at and they can feed back because it's a continuous loop, isn't it, the feedback? This then raises the question about how does one sell? Because when I first started, I was taught Adrian Depeter and I was taught, you know, you've got to get to the presentation and it's all features and benefits and all that kind of stuff. And there wasn't really a lot of listening or uh, asking questions. And it took about seven, eight years before I discovered spin. And then I started to ask questions and it worked a bit better. Yeah. But ultimately, what I've realized is none of that stuff matters as really being there to understand and to help. So talk to me about what you consider to be the fundamentals of selling well. I've got a methodology. It's just my, my version of a consultative selling methodology. And I set the scene straight away with people that I'm working with and saying, look, if we go to the doctor and we walk through the door, the doctor doesn't say, thank goodness you're here, Ian, here's your prescriptions. How do they know what to give you? Because you haven't been asked any questions, no diagnosis has gone on. So I take them through a three-stage process where uh, my consulting company previously was called APE because there's an analysis phase, a planning phase, and an execution phase. And it's understanding that when you work through with a customer to try and diagnose whatever the issue could be that you might be able to solve, and if there isn't one, and it's not a win-win, you're not going to, you're just going to keep on working the relationship until something comes up where you can. So the analysis piece is really just about setting the scene, introducing yourself, giving a bit of a benefit statement, which sort of sits along the lines of we've just been working down the road with XYZ Farm and we've helped them increase their productivity through some work we did with them around da di da da which just lets the client know that you may have some domain knowledge and might be able to help them. And then it's a simple permission question, just I'd love to understand more about what you guys do here. Can I just ask a few questions? And then when as soon as the customer said yes, then you've got to start with those curious, inquisitive questions to see if you can uncover an issue they might have. Then if you have, it's about come up with an issue. It's about going through and quantifying and qualifying it from a productivity and profitability perspective to work out what it actually means to them at the moment, their particular situation, what are the impacts of this issue, what, are you, what is it preventing them from doing, and asking sensible questions that get you enough answers to go further down to you've worked out actually there is something I can solve or there's not. And then you go through to the execution phase, which is getting commitment, understanding what the solution needs to look like and then ensuring success. And it's all about asking questions. You might not actually present anything to them until you're well down that particular method or through the process. And all of that could happen in one 20-minute meeting or over two years, depending on what the sales cycle is. So it's really being diagnostic and curious and inquisitive Impatient. Again, I'm, I'm sure you implied it, but you have to listen and you have to listen not only for what is being said, but what's not being said. Yeah, um, so I've got two, two tools around that. It's, it's around, and I just posted one today, actually, LinkedIn. It's about listening to hear and not reply. It's just you might hear something the customer says and automatically you think you know what they mean and you've, you're formulating a response in your head and still shut instead of just shutting up and listening to the rest of it. A uh, guy I used to work with in Australia who's a sales coaching by the name of Dale, David Binks, Binks. He had a phrase called blinking words, which you may have heard, which is you know that word that says something around what they're not telling you. So the simple example is I might say to you, Mark, so did you have a great weekend? And you might say, oh, I was fine except for Saturday. Well, mm-hmm. Saturday's a blinking word. Oh, what happened on Saturday? So being curious enough and patient enough to understand that the stuff they're not telling you, and they're not going to go, oh, thank goodness you're here, Ian. Here's a whole list of problems I've got. Can you solve them all for me? You're going to have to work to build the trust, to get the rapport, 
so that you'll get the information that enables you to ask more questions. Okay. So again, when it comes to listening, more often than not, sellers have a tendency, like you said, to listen to reply. And what that tends to mean is they don't listen to the end of the sentence. And I can't counsel people enough. Listen right to the end and then pause, count to three or four seconds. Often that silence is enough to have the prospect continue talking. If they don't, it gives you time to reflect, digest what they've said, and think of a really good question instead of just a crappy question that you uh, spring back. And the pause also sends a message that you're reflecting. The problem is that if you're too quick, the buyer then senses that you've done this before. It feels like you're railroading them. With introverted buyers in particular, guided, well, what's the um, the word? Guided questioning, not um, what's the word I'm looking for? No, leading questions. Leading questions. Leading questions for introverts feel like kettling. They, you get the same physiological response of being confined and pressured. And that's why you get thrown out from introverts when you don't expect it. Don't There's a great discussion here with Reed about introverts and that recent podcast. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. You talked about kettling there. We have to be really, really careful. You know, treat people the way they want to be treated. Don't treat them like an idiot. Don't treat them like an organic ATM machine. Treat them with respect. They're human beings trying to make a living get by. If you meet them on those terms, it doesn't matter whether they're the CEO of Unilever or um, you know, Scott with the small masonry business. They, they all eat shit and die. They, they still need help. <laughs> I've used that phrase in the book, uh, sort of, a derivation of that. They're just the same as you. They're still going to sit down to poo. It's, um, <laughs> it just normalizes people for them. I also think that people in sales, particularly when they are just starting out, they get scared of not knowing mm. and they get scared of being able to say to someone like, something along the lines of, I think I understand what you're saying. Can you just explain that to me again in a different way? Or look, it might be something we can help you with, but I'm just not quite getting what you're meaning there. Do you mind if you just explain it to me again, slightly differently? Because it does say to the customer you're interested and you care, and you're not just there to get through to step three so that you can get the order and get out and go and see the person next door. I had a great learning experience when I was a young fellow, and it wasn't about necessarily solving an issue, but it was down south here. And so if you flip New Zealand, it's like Scotland in some ways. So down in Southland, they're more dour and and a bit slower. And (laughs) and I I don't mean slower in terms of intelligence, but just the way things move. Yeah. Yeah. And I was a young fellow, and I'd just been to see the chief electrician at a uh, meatworks, freezing works. And I'd done my calls, and uh, everything I wanted to talk about had been done. I was bright and breezy. He said, would you like a cup of tea? I said, oh, no, I've got to go off and go and see so-and-so. The worst thing I could have done, the fact that he he was going to offer me a cup of tea was progress, but I was too naive and green to realise it and and took a long time. Yeah. It's self-orientation. And again, David Sander came up with this concept of being too eye-centred, and it's absolutely right. You you cannot be eye-centred. You have to have a little bit of eye-centricity. But if you look at uh, Charlie Green's trust equation, the operator that uh, divides the numbers at the top is self-orientation. So it has to be low. Otherwise, you don't end up with trust. Mm. And, and the challenge here is that it takes a long time to really get intimate with pe- most people. But if you turn up with the right intent and you ask the right insightful questions, you can break that uh, time frame dramatically down. By the end of the first meeting, 
You can be mm. bosom buddies because people are actually looking to be understood, for people to feel what they feel, to hear what they say. And that's something that doesn't happen anywhere near enough. Um, we're all too busy, aren't we? You just got to get in and get out and get it done. Yeah, and the, the, the rush, if you had a higher close rate, you wouldn't need so many prospects. Exactly. And you have a higher close rate by treating people well and solving yeah. their problems. And just being real. Yeah. So how do you build on this? You know, you, you, you've now got a good foundation. You've done the diagnostic. You're able to help them solve their problem. How do you build on that so that you're not just constantly starting again afresh every month? In my world, the last part of the sales process is ensuring success, which is making sure that whatever it is that they are buying from you, you bend over backwards to make sure that you are coordinating the team that is implementing or making sure that it's working. And then working out, okay, what can we do next together? And then applying what you've learned from that particular client or success story into your wider network, telling those stories. Because that's the other thing for people to, people I'm working with to realize is that it's marketing gold having customers who you keep happy who become advocates, which then allow you to get those warm and hot leads that you were talking about before. It's just having more conversations with them. And the closer you can get to them, I mean, I've got one client that I've, <laughs> we're working with them again in a sales and marketing advisory role now, but I first sold to them in 1994. Uh, and I've worked through different companies with him. Uh, he's now a mate. Um, our band played at his 60th birthday. It just goes deeper. And it's and it was through really becoming part of the industry that you build your own brand, I guess. A saying I read a couple of three years ago was about be the mayor in your territory. So know what's going on, not just with your own stuff you're trying to sell, but in the industry that people come to you for, look, I'm looking for this. Who can I talk to? Oh, go and talk to so-and-so. There's nothing in it necessarily for you, but you're you're paying it forward. Sounds like you're doing it on purpose, but you're just being part of the industry and making sure that what you're doing is allowing everything else to be better. I think the other part, I think, around sales, too, and I, I agree with you that it's a really noble profession. I think that learning and teaching people how to sell better is not just about cannibalizing the competition. It's about, uh, I mean, everyone that has a product or a service in many ways will be, if they've got their customers utilizing them, those customers are therefore able to be more productive and profitable and do things better, which means they are then able to contribute more into their local economy, that they can employ more people, that we're all in a better space because we are, we have customers who are more aware of how they can do things better because people are selling, for want of a better term, to them with the right intent. And the intent is really important. If you're turning up just to try and take money from someone, they'll pick up on it and they'll reflect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We're talking about long-term mutually beneficial relationships, which is you know where we want to get to. One of my favorite phrases Charlie Green taught me was, um, came from, and I can't remember the name of the CEO from Goldman Sachs, it was before they turned bad. And he said that Goldman's were long-term <laughs> selfish. And it's a really, <laughs> really good philosophy. You, know, you get your needs met by helping other people get their needs met first. And that's the job of salespeople. We're a service professional. We serve. It's not servitude. It's doing good work. And as human beings, we thrive by helping others, by uh, being part of the community. It Please, is. That superpower. Yeah. So getting people to realize when they enter sales that they are problem solvers, it's just a different mindset, particularly if you've got people who are coming off uh, the tools, for want of a better term, or they're from a technical background, and they just they don't realize that they've actually got all – 
the DNA to be really successful in sales because in, inherently they already understand technically what their customers are trying to achieve. So their ability to ask insightful, intelligent questions is far greater than someone who's coming into it as a pure, you know, wanting to be in sales and have no idea technically. They've got a, a head start. So for them, it's just about having a strategy and being organized and disciplined behind that. Excellent. Ian, we've come to time. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Ian, age 23. What uh, twice bit of advice would you whisper? Trust your instincts. You can be an honest salesman without being flashy and you will one day know your shit. <laughs> <laughs> one day. But again, you can learn very quickly. You know, uh, 20 minutes a day hmm. will get you, what, uh, two hours a week? Two hours a week is 100 hours a month, uh, a year. That's a lot of learning. Yeah, it is. It's just it's programming it and doing it, isn't it? One of my pet hates is I'm busy. I'm too busy. Well, are you productive? Just putting in, and we're all guilty of it. So I'm not saying I'm, you know, I'm not without that. I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person, but we just need to put time aside and get things done. I think far often, far too often, we don't actually recognize what people are telling us. When someone says, I haven't got the money or the time, what they're really saying is, I would rather spend the money or the time on doing anything else. You haven't mm. convinced me. Look in the mirror. It's a very, very good place to start. Yeah, okay. We were going to talk about that, weren't we? That is, that is always the golden thing, I think. Yeah. If you lose an order or you've not got a meeting, have a look in the mirror and see what the person in the mirror tells you about what you did or didn't do wrong when working towards it. And debrief calls. Capture the lessons straight afterwards because it will probably tell you where you screwed up and what you can do to rescue it. Well, the same applies to... So 80% my income comes after people tell me no. It's a fabulous skill to develop. Learn how to sell parts. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, we have to do win analysis too. That doesn't happen yeah. enough. We, we don't ask our customers why they bought from us because how do we know how to repeat it if we don't really understand it? We just grab the order and get on with it. So and, and, and go deep. When you do the win analysis, go really deep. Go back to when they had a first thought about changing mm. and dig really deep. It's fantastic. If, if anyone wants to... Uh, check out a guy called Bob Mester, M-O-E-S-T-A, and one of the best books on sales ever, written by an engineer and a product designer with over 5,000 pat patented products out there, and he had wow. to learn how to sell. It's called Demand Side Sales, and it's based on the principle of jobs to be done. Did a couple of podcasts with Bob. He's brilliant. Definitely go back and listen through the archive, because if you want to understand your customer, you have to understand the jobs that they're trying to get done and build out from there. When you do that, then everything, all their irrational behavior makes sense. Why they stick with their crappy status quo solution, why they're not using their flashy new piece of software or why they use the spreadsheet instead of the CRM. Yep. This stuff tells you that something is wrong and that they need help because the job is not being satisfied. Hmm. I'll go look them up. Yeah, really, awesome. really interesting. Clay Christensen as well is the father of this theory. Really very, very interesting stuff. Your book uh, is coming out. Uh, tell us the title again. It's The Six Fundamentals of Sales Know-How. Uh, it explains all of them. There's practical exercises, anecdotes, uh, my successes, my failures. So it's real world. Uh, you can get it through my website, which is iancartwright.co.nz. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at iancartwrightnz. It will soon be available on Amazon. We're just working through that process now, but uh, I'm on all the socials, Twitter and Facebook. But th thank you so much for having me, Marcus. It's been fantastic to have this chat with you and, and meet you and, and just share some thoughts. Delight. Uh, absolute pleasure, Ian. Thank you. So if you're the owner 
or CEO of a tech company with the goal of generating annual recurring revenues in excess of 20 million. Right now, I'm helping companies just like yours to achieve real and sustainable hypergrowth with highly engaged and productive employees and clients who stick with them year after year. If you're up for a brief conversation, I'm happy to share with you some of the ideas and strategies that can help you achieve the same. Email me, Marcus, at laughs-last.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.